Hi again and welcome to the Talking Bass Podcast. This week Ellen is sitting down to talk bass with a true legend of bass guitar, Mr Tony Levin. Tony has been a first call session bass player since the 1970s, having recorded with artists such as John Lennon, Paul Simon, Lou Reed, David Bowie and many, many more. But he's most well known for his pioneering work with Peter Gabriel and as bass player with the progressive rock giant King Crimson. In this interview, Tony discusses his background in classical music and how he eventually came to work with Peter Gabriel and Robert Fripp. He also provides an insight into his recording of the classic bass line from the song Sledgehammer and gives some tips on working as a professional bass player. So without further ado, let's join Ellen as she sits down to talk bass with the incredible Tony Levin. Hello and welcome to the Talking Bass podcast with me your host Ellen O'Reilly and my amazing guest today, Tony Levin. How are you doing Tony? I'm very well, thank you for having me on Ellen. It's been a weird uh, year and a half, so how have you been dealing with lockdown and stuff? Yeah, I can't complain. It's easier for me than for some others I know. Uh, I had my music I can do at home from my home studio. Of course, I miss touring. And uh, it's especially hard on the, the crews of the band, the bands that I tour with, that they have had no work at all, whereas the musicians at least could make their music at home. But hard on everybody. And we're readjusting to this uh, interesting 2021 of being able to reawaken but are, are we up to it and all the rules are changed and all that i'm about to go on tour with king crimson and find out amazing amazing so what um what all bass players i always want to know is how did it all begin for you like were you from a musical family you know were you playing guitar first this is going you know back to your childhood i didn't know anybody wanted to know that but <laughs> since you asked <laughs> uh, i'm i'm very lucky i grew up in a musical family and my older brother pete is a now a keyboard player. He was a French horn when I was a kid. So I always followed my older brother. He got the records. I listened to them. Uh, I didn't follow him in instrument. I played bass from a young age, and I played uh, first classical. I was kind of obsessed with classical bass when he was a French horn player. But uh, I played some jazz as a kid, and then uh, after I kind of pursued that career as far as I was going to, and I was playing in the Rochester. Philharmonic in Rochester, New York. Uh, I realized that's not what I really want to do. I was happier in the jazz bands, and I began to play rock around that time, and may- maybe you know, I was 20 years old. Uh, so uh, I had a classical training, which I don't have much use for anymore, but I still have a great appreciation of uh, classical music. And uh, my my venture into jazz, uh, actually, I still, I've been touring this, this week and this month with Levin Brothers uh, playing jazz, but I feel that I'm a... A, a rock player who visits jazz and has a lot of respect for it, and I do my best to play it, but I'm not uh, uh, looking at my career. I haven't been a jazz player as much as a rock player. So, okay, so going from that rigid world of classical into j- jazz, I mean, that's a complete juxtaposition, you know, of, of, of genres. So what was that like at first? Was well, it... yeah, what was it like? I, I, I was extremely lucky, as I've been many times in my career. I was in classical music school with this drummer guy named Steve Gadd, a great drummer he was then. He was even before that. Great. And and Steve had basically he had nobody to gig with, no bass player to join him in the many gigs he was doing at night in Rochester when we were going to school in the day. So he kind of enlisted me to, to join him and he quietly and subtly kind of mentored me and, and kind of I learned how to, what what I what I know about jazz, I, I learned about time and things like that from just being with Steve and, and hearing him play and being trying to be a tight rhythm section with him. Uh, it it 
to be technical. At, at first, being a classical player, I played right in the middle of the beat, no matter what. I didn't play on top of the beat or laid back or anything like that. And, I, and it's a big adjustment when you haven't done it to learn to play on top of the beat, as we do in most jazz, or on the beat or on top of the beat. And later, uh, in years later, I had to learn to lay back behind the beat to play rock and blues and some kinds of, of music that calls for that. So it was a very big adjustment musically, but the, the path was uh, laid out for me. I was playing with a, a great drummer and, and, and learning as I went, and, and nobody was judging me too much. So uh, uh, it was a good experience for me. Uh, let me add that uh, I've always felt that, uh, now that I play mostly rock, uh, uh, the ethic of the of the classical player is something that I, I think is pretty special, and, and I try to carry some of that with me. And by that, I mean that the classical players really revere and love the greatest of the greatest, the greatest composers and the whatever symphony or whatever they've written. And they, they you know, admire the only the very best performances of those best uh, qualities. A good way to, to joke about it is, is, is we would say, well, well, Beethoven's second, eh, not so great. So even the Beethoven symphonies aren't good enough to qualify to a, cl a real classical snob uh, like I was uh, as the great music. So that reverence uh, carried to extreme maybe is is tedious, but but the respect for really great music can be carried to other genres. So that's what I try to take from classical, the respect for really great music and really great players. In jazz, to me, the jazz, especially when I first went to, to jazz, I was super aware of what, how, how jazz players have what we in America call big ears. They really hear everything that's going on. They hear what the other players are playing. They react to it. They not only can improvise a lot, and that's great, but there's also improvising in, in, in rock. But uh, jazz players in general have, have great ears and know what's going on and do jokes that even maybe the audience isn't aware of between each other or references, and they reference great solos when they're playing solos and, and things like that. So that that ability to really hear everything that's going on, whether you react to it or not, but to be aware of the whole picture is something I treasure that jazz players do, and I try to do it as best I can in my playing when I'm not playing jazz and when I am playing jazz. And it particularly comes up in... In, in a, a group like King Crimson, when we totally improvise, we haven't done that on the last tour, but sometimes it's just complete improv. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And I also do that with uh, the band Stickman that I play in a lot. Um, uh, it's really a lot better if you have players, if you're lucky enough to have players who really are aware of where the other players are going and what they're doing. And instead of just playing riffs that they practiced and going off in directions they like, they they do that some, but they also react to what the other players are doing, and and so when that happens, the improv can reach a a, a more sophisticated maybe is the word uh, a, a higher height, uh, and it can be pretty great. Whereas if you have even one player, let alone many players who are just are really focused on what they're doing and not big listeners, then that total improv can be okay, but it, it can't be as good. So, how did you get into the New York session scene then? I mean. Was it with Steve? Was that kind of like the path? Uh, no, Steve came after I did. He, Steve went in the army, and I went down to New York just by coincidence. I had a gig fall through. We've all had that at all levels of our career. We have gigs fall through, and I found myself a little bit lost and didn't know what to do. So I thought, oh, well, I might as well go to New York if I'm going to be lost and out of work. I might as well be with the in the big pond with the with the great players who were there, and I. 
Gee, I don't know how. I don't, I don't remember exactly the path, but through uh, things were very different in the 60s. There was more than enough work in the studios for for the hundred or so players. I don't know really how total how many, but hundred or so players and, and sessions day and night. And so before long, I met guys who I was playing in a rock band with, and I fell into, uh, oh, I think I was playing in a, a rock band that never really worked called Aha, the Attack of the Green Slime Beast. You probably haven't heard of that band because we <laughs> I think we only did two gigs ever. Uh, but through one guy in that, that named Joe Beck, a guitar player, he got me on some jingles, which are commer what we call commercials. They're, they're a craft. They're not the most exciting thing to play, but it uh, helps to pay the bills. And from that, I got on some record sessions. And uh, you, you, I couldn't do that now if I went to New York. There are so many... Uh, so few sessions compared to then. So it was a little bit lucky to arrive at that time. And at that time, the the community of musicians in New York was very welcoming to another, a new player, this guy from Rochester, and later Steve Gadd, when he came to join me in New York. Uh, oh, I hear there's a good player. Let's try him on a session. Uh, again, that's a, a product of the time, of, of quite a while ago. It was exciting, and uh, uh, I, I did a lot of records in those days maybe one or two a day, record sessions of however many songs you could do in the session. And uh, I liked it, but uh, when I had the chance later to tr to tour, well, actually, I toured a little bit during that, but when I had the chance to really go out and tour, uh, w w which was with Peter Gabriel mostly, and and, Luke, and give up the sessions and, and, and play live instead, I, I fully realized that I'm much more happy playing live and touring and sharing the music with people in real time than I am recording. I still like recording, but uh, I'm really happy when I when I tour. And so uh, 2021 is a good year for me because I'm going back to what I most love to do. Oh, absolutely. I can't wait. I can't wait to get out there myself. So how did the Peter Gabriel uh, gig come along? Um, I'm lucky again. Uh, the producer called me to, to play in Toronto. This is in 1976. I happen to remember that year. Uh, with this singer, Peter Gabriel, who had just left this band called Genesis. I didn't know Peter, and I didn't know of Genesis even. Uh, and uh, incidentally, on that same session was a guitar player named Robert Fripp, uh, the founder of King Crimson. So I met him the same day I, I met uh, Peter, and it's pretty extraordinary that I'm still making music with both of them. Pretty pretty darn extraordinary and pretty lucky. Uh, so I met Peter. There was I met the other guys on the session. That's the way some record sessions go. Uh, we spent quite a few weeks uh, working on Peter's music and, and made a very fine album. And luckily, Peter liked what I did and said, hey, I'm going to tour with this. You want to come and do it? And I, I thought for about a second and a half about that, and about the studio sessions that I would miss because of that. And I, I said, absolutely, let's do that. And um, Peter's his music is unique, of course, and, and wonderful and special, but also his his personality and his 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 personality, which forms the attitude of the tour is also very special and very warm and welcoming so having done that tour for probably less than a year on that first album i was my life was changed i was anxious to do more tours with peter and be part of that family and gradually or slightly the, the family the members changed through the years but still the experience of, of touring with peter to this day has been remains exciting and challenging musically and fun and uh, who wouldn't want to do that? So very lucky to be part of Peter's band. Obviously, you created one of the best bass lines of all time, Sledgehammer. Wow, well, thank you. I, it really is one of the most badass bass lines going. 
So good. Thank you. Uh, uh, Peter has a way, he has his way of, of, of recording and, and working on his songs, which it's been a while since I was in the studio with him quite a few years. But through the years, uh, it, it kind of became that we would spend a lot of time, maybe a month together, the rhythm section doing, doing tracking. And maybe a year later, we would come back and do another few weeks. Uh, very time consuming. Sledgehammer was different. Sledgehammer, we had finished the album that was to be called So, I think, was that album. And uh, really packing up, Mano Kache, the drummer, and I were, were pretty much starting to pack up one night when Peter said, well, you know what, I got this really nice piece for the next album, <laughs> which made me smile because it takes a while in between albums for Peter, or for anybody. Would you mind having a go at this? And it was Sledgehammer. And it, it we did it, I think, I can't say it was one take because I don't exa exactly remember the night, but pretty quickly. You know, we did a few takes thinking, well, Five years from now, we'll come back to this and do it. And uh, uh, I don't know the truth of this, but I heard that somehow the record company heard that and really liked it and insisted or urged him to put it on that album. And he basically didn't have time to mess with it and, and make it 10 minutes long or 15 minutes long, as he sometimes did. And sometimes Peter would do a, a really cool piece and, and then take the intro to the piece, which would be long, and just the intro became the piece. Peter really has a creative and outside-the-box way of doing pieces, and that was an exception. That one came down, went down quickly and uh, came out pretty much like it was and with great musicians added to it, and, and so it became what it was. Oh, oh, by the way, yeah. as a bass player doing tracking, I've, I've, I'm there at the rhythm section sessions, and uh, I do my part, and I hope for the best. I hope I'm still... I'm not talking about Peter now, but every record... One hopes one is still on the record when it comes out, and one hopes one sounds good, and one hopes one played one's best. And, and I've had all variations of that. I've been on not on the record. I've had the sound kind of screwy later. Usually, usually engineers uh, get it right, and it so sounds good later. But anyway, uh, Sledgehammer, wow, when I heard it, they had pushed the bass way up. We weren't playing with that kind of uh, mix in the studio at all. Even I didn't have that much bass, and they had recompressed it. I think I comp I had two compressors on it, and I later found out they compressed it a third or maybe a fourth time to, to get a quite a dis in a subtle way a distinctive sound. So uh, I was really wowed when I heard the track uh, that it had so much bass, and that the bass was the kind of one of the main things in it. And that happens sometimes when one is recording, and the opposite happens sometimes. So so that was a a good news track for me. And so how do you emulate that sound live then? Uh, how do I get that sound? Well, I've been doing it yeah. ever since uh, um, 86. <laughs> so I guess I've got it. Yeah, I, I use uh, one or two compressors. It's, it's close enough. And that particular bass sound was unusual to me that it was a fretless but with a pick and with an octave divider. So so the trick always has been to find an octave divider that... that uh, doesn't glitch that catch captures the attack of the note and even the ones that i like that i use some some they have good nights and bad nights maybe like i do <laughs> so uh on a good night the thing is 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 just right there with me and, and getting the note and, and then there's other nights uh and, and it, fretless music man bass and really cool one i don't think i play it anymore on the original same bass that i first played on it which was a uh, uh cutlass cutlass style uh, music man bass and now I play it on a, a stingray fretless and sounds sounds very close to the same to me 
I got to admit, I haven't really gone back and listened to the original in a while. Um, and neither has Peter. You know, we go, things gradually change, sometimes quickly, but gradually music changes on the road. Tempos change. Usually they move up. Sometimes they don't. Uh, and, and you, the artist and the band or the whole band uh, gets used to that and is happy to go in that direction. I haven't been in many situations where a, a band or or anyone is, is referencing uh, uh, the original to try and get it exactly the same. Yeah. Well, you want to keep it interesting as well, on the road playing the same song every night. Sure. It's a different life. And, and, and it, in my opinion, it, if the music is really good music, it deserves to have have its life and, and, and the, the life of that song, Sledgehammer, or the King Crimson pieces are much more complicated and, and get recorded well, but, but it has its life and, and, and it's fun to be along for the ride, to give it that life. And, and, and there are some, Sledgehammer I tried to play pretty much like the record. I don't know every note that I played, but some King Crimson pieces after all these years, I'm still trying to really get the part as good as it can be. I'm really trying to refine the part and, and changing it night to night and that's far more fun and more challenging than, than just playing. Uh, playing Sledgehammer is great. Fine. It's not challenging because I, I can play it. Uh, maybe can I dance the steps right and, and, and can I sing the words right while I'm doing it? Okay, that's a little bit challenging, but it, uh, there's all kinds of production things and, and, and well, dancing, literally dancing. Uh, so it's a different kind of vibe, but, it, but it's a lot of fun and a lot. I, like, I love the challenge of, of changing up music night to night within the framework of the music has to, it has to work for the music. I, I do not like uh, to just impose, like I'm bored with this part, um, I'm going to change it. I, I don't go with that. I, uh, uh, on that subject, let me add about something you didn't ask. Uh, you, mo- most tours I do, there'll be one or two pieces that are my, my least favorite. They're, my, they're not, not that I dislike them, but they're not, you know. And, and what, what I've done through the years is when I find myself getting to that part of the set and I look at the set list and I think, oh, it's that piece. Uh, instead of uh, playing it, I, I, I think, okay, this is a new challenge. I got to make, I have to change up that bass part in some way, uh, even if it's a ballad. I don't, I don't have a specific song in mind for any bands, but uh, playing it on a different string or making it fatter or somehow work on the song. Uh, uh, so I look at, I look at it as a challenge for, for me to get the bass part better and to have that process kind of captivate me for the next 20 shows of doing that song. And uh, I thought I would share that with you. That's the way I, I face when, when, as sometimes, especially on a long tour, especially on a tour that's longer than a month, when there's one or two down things in a set that, that uh, aren't exciting me. I want to go back to what you were talking about, about the sound you used on you know, songs like Sledgehammer and the Fretless Bass and, and all that, I, I, I kind of noticed that in songs of that era, you know, the 80s, bass lines, I don't know if it was a fashionable thing, but it seemed like a lot of bass lines were at the forefront of the songs and it was it was getting a little bit more experimental. It was like Fretless, it was Oct- Boss OC2 pedals and all this kind of crack. Did, did you, f- have you f- noticed that? Now that you say it, I noticed it, but I was not uh, paying attention to it. It's a good way to put it. I, I, I actually... I listen to probably a little bit less. I, I love to listen to music, but I listen to probably less than a lot of players. Uh, partly because in a good year, not this last year, but in a good year, I'm out touring all the time and busy playing. And after sound checking for three hours and playing a concert for two or three hours, I don't really go to my room and listen anymore. So uh, I'm not oblivious to what's going on. But likewise, in the 80s, 
I, I heard some of what was going on, but I, I wasn't I wasn't captivated, I, I, and especially I wasn't aiming at it. And when you play in progressive groups like King Crimson for sure, and Peter Gabriel maybe even more so, Peter doesn't want anything that's uh, current. He doesn't want me to play what's happening. If he even knows that, then he'll say that's not. Maybe once or twice. I think when the police came out, I, I did a a I. My first reaction to a Peter piece was to play a reggae part, and he was like, "Oh no, no, no!" And, and uh, bless him, you know, he really is outside the box. And if I do something that's never been done, he responds to that like, "Wow, that's good." And, and if the more unusual, the better. And so, couple that with King Crimson, which is trying at least to to even do what we didn't do before, let alone what other bands do. So when those are, are in your in your your work uh, uh, schedule, those kind of bands, one doesn't start listening, saying, okay, here's the happening, the here happening synth-based sound this year. It's really cool. I'd l I'll try and put that in. I, I won't say that I'm not guilty of sometimes doing that, and I've heard recordings of myself, especially in the 70s, playing very, very uh, stylistically like the 70s, and I'm embarrassed by it. <laughs> uh, I forgive myself, though. <laughs> I'm good at that. Um, yeah, so so I'm in a, on a couple bands that try to, well, Stickman also tries to really think out, try to think outside the box. I'm, I'm not one to take credit for succeeding in it, but but when we're trying to do that, we don't focus on here's what's happening now. Going back to that session that, that you met, the Peter Gabriel session where you met Robert Fripp and it led on to you joining King Crimson. Can you tell us a bit about that story? Uh, the sessions were in Toronto. This is back in 76. We're jumping between 85 and 76. So the two big years in, in my career, I guess. <laughs> Fortunately, there have been other years, too. Yeah. Um, um, I, we were up there almost a month. Bob Ezrin was a producer, a wonderful producer. I had done uh, a few Alice Cooper albums with him and a Lou Reed uh, Berlin part of uh, playing on that. And uh, maybe... Mm, I, I don't remember if I had done other other sessions with with him, but he had a, a process of really working hard, long days, and, and for weeks or a month. Peter was this young guy, or exciting guy, playing music different than I had heard, and we were trying to react, uh, the whole band was trying to react to that in a creative way. I, I wasn't a progressive rock player at that time, but I, I, I could hear the, the normal stuff. Well, I could just play the bass part that he was playing in his left hand, and that was odd enough, that was unusual enough, but I was not lending... Uh, new sounds to the the music at all. I had my Fender bass at the time, Fender Precision. And uh, let's see, I met Larry Fast, the wonderful keyboard player at the same time, whom I'm still making music with when I get the chance. And uh, Steve Hunter, an amazing guitar player, whom I still have play on my songs and I play on his when we get the, the chance. Okay, so that led to, we toured with that same band. And then sometime after that, I'm not sure of the year, Robert Fripp did a solo album called Exposure, and uh, asked me to play on that. And and that was Robert's personal music, but essentially it was uh, very much like King Crimson music. So I think that was where I got used to his style, but also he he wasn't auditioning me, but he must have been happy with the way I reacted to his music, because later when he formed uh, the band, first called Discipline, it wasn't called King Crimson, but in, in 80 or 81, I think, 81, uh, they had me in to, to try to play bass with, with Bill Bruford, 
and Adrian Ballou and Robert, and I met those guys, uh, Bill and Adrian, that day, and still making music with them and, and loving that. So that was pretty seminal. So I think it, for, for me, I hadn't thought about this till now, is maybe why I'm so confused talking about it. It was Peter's album, then Robert's solo album, and then asked to join this band called Discipline. And after the first short tour, we changed the name to King Crimson. So yeah, and then you, now your name has become quite connected with like prog rock as well. I mean, because you've got the Liquid Tension experiment as well. So tell us about that, how that came about. Uh, back Ooh, I'm not good at years. Now, the, the more recent years I'm not good at. Uh, in the 90s, at some point, I think the record company idea was to put us together. Uh, the other players knew me. I did not know uh, Mark Portnoy or Jordan, Jordan Rudis uh, or John Petrucci. Uh, I was aware of Dream Theater, the band, but I really hadn't heard it. And we went in to the studio and did it. At, maybe it's not an unusual way of writing, but just get in and start playing. Here's an idea I have. And... The other guys learn it and then say, oh, that leads to an idea I have. And so we compose at the same time as we're recording. And and that's the way we did it in the 90s, and that's the way we did it last year when we just decided almost on the spur of the moment, well, nothing's going on this year. What if we got together? Well, let's let's take a chance and try to work out the logistics. This was in August of 2020. Sorry, July. July and August. July into August. We spent, I think, total three weeks together in the studio and with hotel rooms and stuff that wasn't easy to set that up and and the process was <laughs> we were all laughing because the process went down exactly the same it had been 20 years since we had been in the studio we played together plenty and seen each other we're friends but 20 years later and the process was the same one guy john petrucci would play it is an amazing uh guitar riff long one too very complicated and Jordan Rudis on keyboard with his left hand would play it immediately and memorize it immediately. And I would be, oh, guys, can you just play that again slower? And I'd be with my pen and paper trying to write it down, and they'd move on. And Jordan said, well, what that could lead into this? And Mike Portnoy on drums would say, well, wait a minute, what if we put that in five instead of in four? And what, that thing you played, and the, the, the piece is zoom, the composition is zooming ahead. And I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I'm used to, I used to be used to being the fastest guy in the room at memorizing things and learning things. In that band, I'm I'm for sure the the retarded guy that everybody tolerates and doesn't mind having in the room. Uh, they must really like me. And also, I make espresso for them. So so there you go. Keep that's my job security. My coffee's very good. Uh, that was that was the experience in the '90s, and it was exactly the same all last year. And we came up with a lot of music and a, a very good. We're very happy with the music. Uh, that band likes to improvise also. There's, a, there's the fast composition for sure. And then when we get that piece, maybe late, maybe night at night, we say, well, let's just play some and record that. And someone later will pick the best parts of those recordings and either use them for more material or have it be a piece on its own or have it be a, a bonus piece for the bonus CD of improvs. Uh, so we know what we are and we, when we do what we do. And it, it's good fun. Uh, one... One hopes there'll be a tour. The the the, uh, the complex element of of I don't know what you'd call it. it's a band Liquid Tension Experiment, but it's also a kind of a project band. It's it's a a band of guys who are in other bands, and the other bands are their priority. Dream Theater, King Crimson, Mike Portnoy is at least in a dozen bands. <laughs> He's really busy. Uh, so all great, that's great. But you can only tour. How do you tour? You got to book it at least six months ahead of time. Hopefully eight months, nine months ahead of time. You have to wait till there's a period that none of those bands are booked and everybody's willing to commit and tell 
Dream Theater and tell King Crimson and tell Peter Gabriel, okay, next September I need that two weeks. Uh, so one hopes we will. I'm sure we will if we're able to, uh, but it won't be for a while because we have all these commitments with the other bands. And sooner or later we'll hopefully tour, and that music will, will hopefully get what it deserves and grow from being played in front of people every night. That must be t- taking off a lot of, like, you know, headaches in a diary, trying to organize all that, like, you know. So who gets first priority? Is it Peter Gabriel and then King Crimson or King Crimson and Peter Gabriel and then Liquid Tension and, and, and Stickman and all the other things? You uh, have to kind of, like... It's a good problem to have, isn't it? Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't. I, there are many years when I don't have that problem. <laughs> I have the problem, like every musician, of gee, I, I wish I had a tour. I wish I had something to do. Uh, uh, like, frankly, like last it, it, year, yeah, yeah, darn. Well, last year was, was stands alone and and uh, being free for anything and nothing to do. Uh, uh, you know, it's not hard. I change it. From, I, I remember when I joined King Crimson uh, Discipline. And and told Robert my priority is Peter because I had been touring for a long time with Peter at that point and I didn't want to suddenly tell Peter no and so he said oh yeah fine it'll be fine so for a few years we juggled the two, the, the I did uh, the two managements would talk to each other and they would juggle tours so I was able to do, bo- do both uh, then really this century Peter has toured a lot less and King Crimson has toured a lot more uh, I still wouldn't say that I, I could say that. King, I, frankly, I don't think about it. I don't have it on a list, but King Crimson has been my priority. And if there were to be a Peter Gabriel tour and it were to conflict with uh, Crimson, I don't know what would happen, but I would try to talk both managements into that not happening. However, if Crimson books, as they have uh, this year, it's booked a number of months and that's booked, uh, then I next look to uh, Stickman, the band that I have quite a bit of control over, and it's just a trio, so a little bit more manageable to book a tour and, and more uh, flexible. And, and by the way, Pat Mastelotto, one of the drummers in King Crimson, is also in Stickman. So with two of the three of us in King Crimson, where there's a break from King Crimson, we can look at that and, and get our agent on, hey, what if there was a Stickman tour? And then closely after that, uh, I'm in a jazz band with my brother, Levin Brothers, and uh, still more flexible because we can just do a local jazz gig uh, with two weeks. Uh, notice or one week uh, 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 so there you go there's probably a few others that that, that slip in once in a while so, or, or not not full tours but uh, maybe a, a week with somebody uh, and I don't really spend time prioritizing them I think I'm the same as every musician you want to have work and sometimes too much work comes in and it's and it conflicts and you try to work it out however you can so what's your plan post-covid then a musician with a plan? You think I'm a musician with a plan? I plan to take, <laughs> uh, I, to happily do all the tours that are coming in and, and hope, uh, dearly hope that my health, uh, because I'm not the youngest guy, that my health, my health is very good and I hope I continue to be lucky on that front and that my health just allows me to do them because uh, the nature of tours is, the music is the reward, that's great, but in the other two, 22 hours a day uh, can can be rough in some tours and can be pretty pleasant and doable in other tours and I want to do them all and and it's it's a like I said King Crimson has a lot booked this year so does Stickman and right up until through spring of next year uh, Levin Brothers and Stickman and King Crimson have bookings so that's good all good on that front that's great well obviously we want to read more of your uh, road diaries on your website that's tonylevin.com 
that blog, which has been going since 96, so long, even before the term blog came about. You know, you did your homework. Yeah, it's true. Uh, uh, I started a website early because I, you know, a computer guy and a web guy, and, and uh, I started called PapaBear.com, Papa Dear Bear Records, was a record company I set up. And I started it up pretty early to try to sell my CDs online. That was back when you had to ask somebody to write a check and trust you and send it to you. And it didn't sell much. But but because of the comments I would have on the website, I realized that people really liked the incidental thing that I did of, of mentioning what it's like backstage and on tour. And so it became, obviously, I mean, that's that's what people like. I like doing that. In fact, I love that. I love, I think one of the great things about the internet that's not appreciated much is it helped take down some of the barrier between audiences and bands. Uh, you know, they could just be there. And at, at that time in the, in the mid-90s, it was... A little unusual. It wasn't out of the. I'm sure I'm not the first person to do a blog from the road, but the, there was no word for it, and and uh, it was fun. It was a way. I was busy taking pictures in those days, as I am now. The pic, unfortunately, the 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 web pictures I put up then were, were 220 pixels wide. Was the widest you could do back then, because uh, people's browsers couldn't handle it, and their 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 computer screens would only be this big. Uh, things have changed a lot. As has my photography. I want to mention, since you mentioned my website, I, I spent a lot of last year putting together a, uh, a book of my photos, all those photos through the years of King Crimson and Peter Gabriel. I have one around somewhere. Uh, and that's available on, on TonyLevin.com. It's called Images from a Life on the Road. And I I feel really good about it because had it, I don't, I'm not glad that 2020 was what it was. But that was on my list of I really got to do this someday. And I would never, ever have had the time to do it because it takes a lot of hours to collate photos, especially when you have tens of thousands of them and pick the best ones and organize them. And, and uh, so I feel good that I did that and was able to get it out. It would not have happened in another year. It probably would have never happened and checked it off the list. It really, when you take a, a, the web diary is great and I do get to put photos up there plenty. But when you take get some lucky pictures that are really great, in my feeling, and, and some of them are, go back to the 70s and 80s too. Uh, it feels like it wants to be shared with at least the fans of that band. Peter Gabriel fans ought to be able to see the pictures that I took of him floating through the audience doing what later became called crowd surfing uh, from the vantage point to the stage. And I would take the pictures every night. So it's, you know, I, I take a sigh of, of happiness and relief that, okay, it's out there and people can see those pictures now. That's brilliant. Well, that uh, that book is available for purchase via your website, tonyleven.com, if anyone wants to check it out. Yeah. And I think you have one there. I do. Oh, beautiful. I don't know what these, these are for reminding me of, of pictures. Yeah, I could spend all day yeah. showing you pictures. In it. Big, nice, a lot That's of great. pictures from the road. That looks great. I actually, when I was, I, I interviewed someone else who was a great bass player from a band called Anthrax, but he's also an actor. And now I see you've got a book of photography out. Do you think there does, there's something about being a musician that lends itself to something else in arts? You know what I mean? So you've got a bit of photography going on as well. Do you, do you maybe, that? maybe. I, there are a number of bass players who are very good photographers and musicians, of course. And, it, you know, the road is, is a, it's a good hobby or activity to you have a lot of time on the road uh, a lot of time traveling especially and, and photography works for that uh, uh, I, I think I, I, 
I know a few musicians who are actors also, but there's some, I, I, I have tremendous respect for uh, the, the career of being a musician. I think it's hugely rewarding and I'm very lucky that it's what I'm able to do. But I'm also aware there's something about music, live music especially, maybe it's what's great about it, but it, it exists in the moment. What is the word ephemeral? Is that the word for it? I don't know. But it's there and then it's it's over. And it never really, it can be captured on, on recordings, but it's not the same. Okay, so that, which is the wonder of it and part of the magic of music, it, maybe through the years it makes you a little bit crave something that's like, here, here's what I do. Here's Here's a picture I drew. Or here's a, a a poem I wrote, or here's a book I wrote. Uh, so maybe some of us, not all, and there's no reason to be, but maybe some of us are drawn to something that it's tangible that you can just say, okay, that's it, because the wonder of what we've been doing is is great, but but is outside that realm. I'm aware of time, so I'm just going to ask one more question before I let yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah. um, what advice would you give for bass players who want to be touring session bass players? Like, what what what's required? That's a very good question and a rough question. I've I've been asked it before. Yeah, yeah, it's rough because I don't I don't have a the playbook. I didn't follow the playbook book. I just kind of, as you can tell if you've listened to what we've said about the, the Gabriel and and King Crimson, I just fell into a lot of stuff. Um, and and the things I've learned through my career has mostly been about music, about how to pl- try to play better. Uh, I th- I think it's I, I'll say it's a great field to be. It's worth pursuing. I think those who are not cut out to do it won't pursue it. But if your passion is to do that, it's worth pursuing. Uh, uh, probably the most useful thing I, I can say is not the most positive thing. It's it's that there there will be discouraging times. Every every musician who you would call very successful, whom I know, every one of them has been at some point or other rejected from for an album or from a band, kicked out of a band, auditioned for something, didn't get it thought he had a tour, the tour fell through. It just happens. It's very unfortunate that that happens, but at least uh, you can know that. And you know, that that old guy, Tony Levin, who's been around, said, yeah, it happens to everybody. That doesn't mean it, it won't hurt, but you got to factor that in and, and, and keep going because uh, there's a lot of good times to have that uh, more than overcome the, the, the rough aspect of the, the business of music. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Tony, for being with us today. Thank you, Alan. I loved your questions. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Well, it's an honor to speak to one of my favorite bass players ever. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much.